0: This is an educational series by the Ukrainian Fire Chaplain Show. Welcome to today's episode. We have an awesome series for you. We're going to be looking at Clement of Rome, who lived in the first century and was one of the first Christians that we know about outside the New Testament. Let's go ahead and take a look at what we've got. So, who was St. Clement of Rome? That's kind of going to be one of the focuses of part one of our three-part series on Clement's uh, writing and life. Clement of Rome was a clergy, and he was a a friend of Linus uh, and Cletus. And some people are immediately going to say, who was Linus and and Cletus? And I'm going to get into that in a second. But what we're looking at here is... He was one of the first generation of disciples of the apostles. Now, for those of you who are familiar and have read through the scriptures, you know, we have the apostles themselves, right? You know, uh, whether that's Peter, Matthew, John, you know, that was the first generation of disciples who knew and touched and lived with our Lord. What we're looking at as the first generation of disciples who knew and touched and lived with the apostles. These are the students of the students, so to speak. These are the the first generation of Christians who were born and learned about Christianity, not directly from Christ, but from his followers. So, who, who, again, was Clement? Well, if we look at kind of the, the evidence that we have, there's very, very little that gives us an absolute certainty. Uh, we know that he was a, a friend and student of Paul uh, in Philippi. And our best estimate is that the St. Clement who wrote this letter in Rome was the Clement that Paul spoke of in Philippians 4.3. I'm going to read a little passage here, um, just out of choice, from the King James Version of the Bible. Therefore, my dearly beloved, and longed for, my joy and crowned, so stand fast in the Lord. I beseech Eudoius, and I beseech Sinctaki, that they may be of the same mind in the Lord, and I entreat thee also help those women which labored with me in the gospel with Clement also and with my fellow laborers whose names are in the book of life. So we don't know with absolute certainty that the Clement Paul was speaking about, um, is the Clement that wrote this letter, but we do know with certainty is that the Clement that wrote this letter was the leader in the church of Rome in the later part of the first century. That is the church founded by Peter and Paul, um, so, going back to well who was Linus and Cletus that you know Clement was friends with well we we know from the writings of the history of the church in the first couple of centuries while it was in the catacombs that after Peter's death, someone who served as a fellow uh, apostle or a fellow clergy with him took over the leadership. right You have you know leader uh, Peter passing and you have this void and well, who took over that? Linus. Who also took over after Linus's martyrdom? Cletus. And then who took over after Cletus's death? Clement we're looking at today. And I'm going to put up, a l- up here on the screen, a list of the popes. We have again, Peter, Linus, uh, Cletus, some translations have it Anacletus and Clement. And, you know, in the, the more developed Catholic Orthodox tradition, what we would say is, well, yes, these were the the first popes. Although, no, that word may not have been used at the time. They were the, the father or the leader of the church in Rome. And, and thus, uh, we would consider them as, as Bishop of Rome, or the preeminent leader, that they were the head of that church. So some other questions we're going to get into today. Well, you know, I, I really love this this terminology in one of the translations where it talks about, you know, uh, the church sojourning at Rome. And that's one of the things that we're kind of going to see a little bit with Clement's letter, and also with some of the other uh, early Christian writers that we're going to look at. And that is like, there is this conception of the church as one. And this church is like, by nature, having an obligation, having a responsibility to be one. But in spite of that, it spread throughout the world. And so you see that they would describe this as the church sojourning or the search journeying in that particular location. Uh, and that's one of the phrases and, and translations that I've really enjoyed. So anyway, these, these successors, Linus, then Anacletus, then Clement, who we're looking at today, you know, succeeded as the leader, right? Um, after Peter's martyrdom, he, uh, Clement took over the leadership of the church uh, after Lida, Linus and, and Cletus had passed, uh, or we suspect also had been martyred as well. Um, that brings up the question of, well, what do you mean succeeded Peter? What do you mean about all of this? Uh, isn't this kind of like Roman popery type of stuff? And I'll be the first one to say that I'm not a Roman Catholic. Uh, I'm an Eastern Catholic, but what we're going to get into is turning back to the scripture itself and kind of take a look at what we're talking about. So in, in, uh, the Acts of the Apostles, uh, one of the things I want you guys to take a look here, and I'm going to put, put this quote up on the screen, um, was there such a thing as... The office of the apostle or the office of the bishop or the office of priest, right? But what was there such a thing as that? And, and let's take a look here. Uh, in those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was all about 120. And that, that's interesting of noting because, um, I, in the Jewish tradition at the time, you had to have 120 men to, uh, so to speak, have a quorum to have a a faction legitimately established according to Jewish custom or, you know, informal Jewish law at the time. But that's something awesome worth looking at in a scripture study on these series. Continuing, brothers, the scripture has to be filled. The Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus, for he was numbered among and was allotted to share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and his bowels gushed out, and became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. So the field was called in their own language, the field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate, let there be no one to dwell within it, and let another take his office." So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day he was taken up from us, all these must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward to Joseph called Barsabbas and Matthias. And they prayed and said, you Lord know the hearts of all men show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots and the lot fell on Matthias and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. So right there in the Acts of the Apostles on the eve of Pentecost and the descent of the Holy Spirit, you have a reference to the office or formal position of apostle. Now, what we would later understand or what we'll, we'll get into this a little bit and like Irenaeus and, and somewhat uh, with some of the other fathers is that as the church grew and spread throughout the world, you're going to need leaders or governors or overseers. Um, or, it's just a fancy word at the time that's later used as the word Bishop in English um, who would lead and oversee all of these things and, and overtake them. And so that office would grow as the church would grow geographically. Um <clears throat> The real challenge is going to be, though, here, looking at this, um, what does that have to do with Clement? Well, let's take a look here, right? So, what we're kind of getting at into some of this stuff here is that uh, Corinth, which, if you've read Paul's two epistles to the Corinthians, uh, had certain proclivities, typically very sexual. But the particular issue here at this time period... Uh, With our speculation is going to be sometime in the uh, late 80s, early 90s is when this epistle was written. Is that although Corinth had become a very well-respected Christian church in the middle and later part of the century, and had survived and really flourished uh, and grew in spite of the persecutions of uh, Domitian, there are a few other uh, emperors intervening. I know he's going to be the big one. The real challenge is that. What was Clement writing about? And so one of the issues, the background of this epistle that we'll get into in the next parts, part two and three, are that basically the the, the laymen in the church had grown up and they had all got together, a couple of them, and decided to expel the clergy, um, apparently without good cause other than just, you know, pride and ambition. So Clement's uh, letter to the Corinthians in the first late century is uh the one that we have that we're going to cover. It's the only genuine surviving writing of his. It bears witness to the practice and beliefs of the first generation of Christians and their disputes and struggles within the life of the early Christian church. Um uh, Clement was so popular that many other writings have actually been circulated in his name and hopefully we'll get to those in the later part of this series. Um in those days, there wasn't really so much uh, an issue with like forgery and stuff like that as it was, you know, people would study under this person or they would uh, be, uh, you know, enamored with this person and they'd write an epistle or they'd write a letter in his name, uh, especially if they were mentored by him as a as a progeny or as a you know participating in the, the family name, so to speak. The church in Corinth appealed to Clement as the leader in the church of Rome, in spite of an interesting fact namely that St. John was still alive. We believe he would have been in either Ephesus or uh, Patmos in exile at the time. But, you know, here you have John, the only disciple apostle of our Lord that was not to see death, you know, for his abandonment, right? And that's one of the arguments is that John, um, the evangelist, never was martyred because he was one of the 12 12 apostles that was actually faithful with Jesus there throughout his crucifixion and and remained at his side. And because of his fidelity was spared the, the martyrdom that the rest of the apostles would eventually face. But John was still alive. So why do we have a first generation apostle, um, being appealed to by the Corinthians? Uh, why don't, they appeal to St. John instead of writing to Rome. And that raises an interesting question of primacy, not only primacy of love, primacy of authority, primacy of uh, covenantal or family guidance, so to speak. Uh, and, And one of the implications is obviously that the church at Rome and the office of the successors there to Peter and Paul had, in a certain sense, a more preeminent authority than the greatest of the 12 apostles. That is greatest morally. Ultimately, uh, Clement was martyred for his faith in Christ. His writings reflect a beautiful expression, and you're going to see that as we work through some of this. What we have is a, uh, a credible based uh, letter of his that is due to a comparison of his epistle to quotes of his work by subsequent generations of Christians. And so you kind of look at the original copy that we have here, and we look at quotations made by so-and-so in this part of the world, and quotations made by so-and-so in this part of the world, and you can, just like the books of the Bible, uh, come back to uh, a relatively credible understanding of how accurate the original copies that, um, that have survived are. Um, some of the credibility that we have uh, about this epistle, Uh, being a genuine work from the leader of the church in Rome at the end of the first century comes from the quotations of Irenaeus of Leon, uh, who is an early church father and uh, author of the great work against heresies, much of which are quite irrelevant to today. A lot of the early Christian heresies that he was dealing with, at least in book one and book two, Of His work were um, kind of like pagan hybridizations of Christianity, and hopefully in the series on Irenaeus of Leon, I'll try to get into that. One of the other early Christian writers that we have that gives credibility and credence to this epistle being a genuine document from the first century church was Eusebius of Caesarea who interestingly enough was on the wrong side uh, of uh, dispute. He, as I understand, uh, sided with the factions of Arius, who believed that, you know, Christ was basically a creature, but we can get into Eusebius on in another episode also. And I apologize for kind of hitting and running, but I'm just trying to draw attention to, you know, here you have people on multiple sides of the spectrums giving credibility to, uh, this document that we're going to look at. We also have Origen, Dionysius of Corinth and a few others. To give you a, a beautiful quote from Irenaeus, Clement had seen the blessed apostles end quote and another passage, he had been conversant with them. It might be said that Clement had the preaching of the apostles still echoing in his ears that is pretty powerful. I mean, you're talking about somebody who lived and knew. There would have been no doubt that he would have had a, a pure access to the gospel uh, as purists could have had been had without actually hearing it from the lips of Jesus. And Eusebius, in his ecclesiastical history, I have another beautiful quote. There is an extant epistle of this Clement, which is acknowledged to be genuine and is of considerable length and of remarkable merit. He wrote in the name of the Church of Rome to the Church of Corinth when a sedition had arisen in Corinth. We know that this epistle had also been publicly used in a great many of churches, both in former times and in our own. And that's going to kind of drag us back into what I had mentioned earlier, um, and that is this work was considered by many Christian churches in the first few centuries to literally be part of the New Testament. Um now, if we remember, much of the New Testament may not have even been written, depending upon uh, what date that the apocalypse was written. Some would put it, you know, towards the end of John's life, you know, in the 90s, around the turn of the century, depending upon when we when we believe his death occurred. Um, the New Testament was still being written, the various epistles from uh, Paul to Corinth, from Paul to Ephesus, the various gospel accounts, while a lot of that had obviously already been written... The copies had not always been, you know, it's not like today where I can just put together an email and blast it out to, you know, 5,000 people like those spam emailers or 5 million like the spam emailers. And everybody all over the world instantaneously has this. You're talking about a very expensive process of using and forming, creating paper. You're talking about hand copying this. And given the hatred of Christianity at the time, secretively dispersing these documents within the various communities over a geographic region that covers, you know, Southwest Asia, North Africa, and Europe over a period of centuries. It didn't happen overnight. The Bible didn't just drop out of the sky uh, in Jesus's day. And then, you know, it ascended back into heaven with him and reappeared at the time of Martin Luther. Now you had handwritten letters back before we had the printing press and modern paper production that had to, to work their way around. And during this time period, many of the other authoritative writings of legitimate Christian leaders of the Christian community, such as Clement, um, were circulated. And there were also many forgeries uh, cited and created in the names of apostles by, you know, factions that uh, wanted to break away from the church. One of the earliest ones would have been the the Gnostic faction amongst others later, the Docetists and some of the others that we can get into. But during this time period, it's not really clear what is and what isn't. But this this letter was not only so well respected, but so in keeping with the gospel, that even though it We ultimately know it didn't have God as its primary author. So many people viewed the holiness and veracity of the gospel truth in this human leader of the church, that it was respected and given a place of reading. Um, It it was circulated and even read during worship and treated, particularly in the churches of Egypt and Syria, and the the later Christian writer Clement of Alexandria would uh, hold it to almost be part of the canon of scripture, although subsequent councils of the Catholic Church eventually determined that uh, God was not the primary author, that is, it was not divinely inspired. It nevertheless was a credible document, uh, and and as a historical leadership document of the church, it bears witness to truth, uh, no different than say the letters between you know Thomas Jefferson and John Adams bore witness to the history and inner workings of the American government during the first. You know, first decades of its formation, like just because God wasn't the primary author doesn't mean it's all fiction and we can just dispose of it as accurate, credible history. Right. I mean, we wouldn't do that in historical studies. Why would we do that in historical studies of God's church? As if somehow there's like a schism or a break between reason and history when we're dealing with God and religion things, it's likely that this letter was written, uh, during or after Domitian's persecution of Christians at the end of the first century. And this is again, kind of what I had mentioned and quickly, what I'm going to do is cover a couple of themes, um, and kind of lay out the epistle with a, a great quote from, uh, Clauston's work on petrology, which is a couple of the series I've got, you know, Clauston that I'm quoting from, uh, I've got a very interesting series of, uh, conferences that were given her many years ago. Uh, I've also got a great translation from Cyril Richardson, uh, in addition to the work that I'll be quoting from specifically, which was done by Philip Schaff, Uh, I'm selecting that translation, even though I don't think it's the most accurate or sometimes the most, you know, easily flowing just because it's, um, uh, of copyright originally done around the turn of the century back in the late 1800s it's out of copyright and I don't have to worry about licensing or people complaining or stuff like that so some of the themes that you're going to find in Clement's first epistle are going to be uh, not only an issue of church history and what he was talking about at the time period and dealing with the sedition that had occurred in Corinth and how they appealed to Rome and uh, Rome intervened uh, as a, a moral witness with uh, Authoritative power, though maybe not what we would understand, you know, juridically in later development of, of the church. One of the other things that we're going to cover is going to be uh, the resurrection, and that is the belief in the future resurrection to come that was prominent throughout his writing. One of the other themes that we're going to cover is liturgy and church worship a little bit. We're also going to kind of talk about uh, jurisdiction and hierarchy, and we're going to ask the question: Well. What exactly did the structure of the Christian churches uh, at this time period look like? We have obviously Paul's epistles and the other New Testament writings that inform us about a number of things, but what did they look like at the end of the first century? In this time period, had they developed? Had they changed? Do we have kind of like, you know, obviously we didn't have televangelism, but we did. Have, do we have like the street preachers that would go set up a tent and convert people and then send them all off on their own and hope everything worked out well when they moved on to another city. You know, some of this is going on. Um, quickly, what I'd like to do is kind of cover the structure and layout of the epistle, and that's going to end our first part here today. To ch- so the epistle, basically, you'd say it has four parts, right? It has an introduction, and it obviously has a conclusion. Those are kind of not the main parts. We have two main parts in between. Uh, according to Clauston, he breaks, uh, the first part down to chapter four through 36 and the second part down to chapter 37 through 61. And I'm just going to read a quote from him here. The introduction calls attention to the flourishing state of the Christian community of Corinth before the quarrel, the harmony that existed among the members and their zeal for good. Starting at chapter three, by way of contrast, um, Clement points to an entirely changed condition in Corinth. The first main part is of rather general character. It really deprecates, it really takes issue with the discord and envy that arose there. And it cites numerous instances of these vices, both in the old Testament and in the early Christian times of the Bible. The first part, furthermore exhorts these Corinthians to penance, hospitality, piety, humility, And it substantiates its argument with a host of quotations, examples that we're going to look at. The author then speaks of the goodness of God, the harmony of his creation, his omnipotence, the resurrection, and the future judgment, humility, temperance, faith, and good works leading to reward and to our future hope in Christ. The second part starting at chapter 37, deals more immediately with the quarrel among the Christians in Corinth. God, the creator of order in nature, requires order and obedience from his creatures, especially in his church, and the necessity for discipline and subjection is proved by pointing to the rigorous training of the Roman army and to the existence of the hierarchy in the Old Testament. So, too, Christ called the apostles, and they in turn appointed bishops and deacons. Love should take the place of discord, and charity should prompt forgiveness. The instigators of contention are exhorted to do penance and to be submissive. The conclusion summarizes the exhortation and expresses the fervent hope that those commissioned to deliver the epistle may return in haste to Rome with the glad tidings of peace reborn. The work is of great consequence for the study of ecclesiastical and of church history, and also for the study of the history of dogma and of liturgical services or Christian worship. So that's kind of Quaustin's, um summary. I thought it was so well to the point that it was worth quoting. Uh, I hope you appreciated today's episode. Let's go ahead and call this a wrap, and we will see you next week as we start working into the first epistle of Clement to the Corinthians once again this is your host christopher of the ukrainian fire chaplain show if you have not already go ahead and look at our website the it's got information about us and ways that you can follow subscribe or support us we're on various podcast platforms we're on facebook and youtube and if you're able to consider supporting us on patrone Also want to give a shout out to Daniel Atchison, the music artist Atch, for permission to use his song forever in our productions. Until next time. Would like to offer my special thanks to the Antiochian Orthodox Choir Group, Incense, for letting us use their song, The Great Perkimenon. You can find links to their music in the description.